An Avro RJ100 takes off from Berlin Airport. Not long afterwards, it crashes into some hills near Zurich, bursting into flames and killing almost all of those on board. What happened? And what can we learn about error chains and challenging authority? Come on board as we discover the human factor. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of my series, The Human Factor, where we discuss aviation accidents and incidents, looking at what happened and what we can learn, both from an aviation perspective and for other aspects of life too. My name is Katie and I'll be your host today. Today we're looking at Crossair Flight 3597, an Avro RJ100, which departed Berlin-Tegel Airport on the 24th of November 2001, bound for Zurich. The aircraft was flown by Captain Hans-Jurich Lutz, in his late 50s an experienced pilot with nearly 20,000 hours, and First Officer Stefan Lura, a 25-year-old, reasonably low-hours pilot. Neither of the crew had much experience on the RJ. The captain for this sector was pilot flying, or the pilot that was actually handling the aircraft, whilst the First Officer took the monitoring role. Captain Lutz had a chequered training record, having made some significant errors of judgement over his 22 years with Crossair, most notably having retracted the landing gear of a Saab 340 aircraft on the ground about 10 years earlier, leading to the aircraft being written off and him losing his training captain's position. He'd also failed a number of flight tests over the years with the airline. Now, occasional failures happen, of course, but a pattern certainly existed within Lutz's training history. As Crossair Flight 3597 approached Zurich, still in the cruise, the crew set up for an approach to runway 14. This approach was an ILS, or Instrument Landing System, a precision approach which is preferred by most operators in the majority of conditions, as it allows for aircraft to approach and hopefully land at an airport in much more marginal weather. Fairly late on in the approach, air traffic control informed the crew that runway 28 would now be in use for the approach and landing that evening. It was nearly 10pm and the weather wasn't great, with low cloud and poor visibility and some rain. Runway 28 only had a VOR DME approach, a non-precision approach which required the crew to monitor their distance from the airport and descend manually according to a published procedure. This is a slightly more labour-intensive but nonetheless well-practised approach, helped in the case of runway 28 at Zurich by the VOR being on the field. As it was a fairly late clearance, the crew didn't have a whole lot of time to set up and fully brief the approach, so some corners had to be cut. A previous company aircraft which had made an approach to runway 28 reported that they'd only seen the runway at minimums, owing to poor visibility and low cloud, so the crew of Crossair Flight 3597 weren't expecting to see the airport on approach. Owing to the nature of the approach and the systems of the RJ, the crew were required to select a vertical speed, measured in feet per minute of descent, that would enable them to track the glide path. Captain Lutz set a descent rate initially of 1,200 feet per minute to establish on the glide, based on their current speed. As the speed, of course, reduced when they configured the aircraft for landing, the descent rate should have been reduced. This never happened, which meant that Crossair Flight 3597 descended below the glide, towards the high ground. 
The MDA, or Minimum Descent Altitude, for the VOR approach to runway 28 was 2,390 feet, and the RJ approached this. An MDA is the non-precision descent limit below which an aircraft cannot continue an approach legally unless positive visual contact with the runway is established. As they reached MDA, Captain Lutz called, I have ground contact. We're continuing at the moment. He'd spotted some lights, but certainly not those of a runway. They continued to descend, down to less than 2,000 feet, being certain they'd spot the runway imminently. After all, the previous crew saw it at two miles, according to their reports. Some 12 seconds after descending below MDA, the crew called go-around and advanced the thrust levers applying full power to head back into the skies. But it was too late. Crossair Flight 3597 crashed into a ridge of trees before sliding down the valley. Its wings ripped off, and it and the forest around it ablaze. Of the 33 people on board, nine escaped, but 24 died in the crash, including both pilots. But what actually happened to cause such an incident? It'll come as no surprise to regular listeners that the crash of Crossair Flight 3597 wasn't just down to one reason alone. It was a chain of errors and a chain of events that led them to being in this situation. Indeed, had the runway stayed on runway 14 and they'd been able to conduct an ILS approach, it's very, very unlikely that anything would have gone wrong at all. The late runway change meant that the crew of Crossair Flight 3597 had very little time to set up for a more challenging approach, a much more challenging approach, and little time to brief it as they were already in the descent. While they could have indeed extended their flight and asked for some more track miles or to hold, the captain asked the first officer if he was familiar with the approach, and he suggested that he was. The level of familiarity is perhaps unknown, but owing to his low experience, he probably hadn't done it a huge amount. The main issue, in terms of why the aircraft crashed, was essentially confirmation bias. The crew were told from air traffic control that a flight from their own company just ahead of them had landed quite successfully, albeit at minimums, and that they'd seen the runway two miles out. So their expectation, their mental model essentially, was that they were going to see the runway at about two miles out. There wasn't a huge gap between these two aircraft. So when they got to what they perceived was two miles out based on their descent, they were expecting to see the runway. The fact that they saw lights was essentially confirmation bias for them. So they saw the lights where they expected to see the lights and adapted their mental models such that, of course, that was the runway. Of course, it had to be the runway because that was where they were. Except they weren't. The level of capacity at this point in the flight deck was likely to be reasonably low. Not only was it the last sector of a long day, and it was late, but with a first officer who was pretty inexperienced, and a captain whose record suggested that his capacity wasn't great, the chances are that appreciating the differences between a precision and a non-precision approach may not have happened. While non-precision approaches are a very common thing for crews to do, the majority of approaches do tend to be ILSs, which, in many ways, fly themselves. There's no manual intervention required to follow the glide slope. 
So as a result, appreciating that the descent rate needed to be shallowed off when they slowed down was perhaps something that, as they hadn't briefed it, just didn't happen. And certainly as they descended below the glide, it appears that it didn't happen at all. The aircraft was perfectly serviceable, and yet, as a result, they put it into a state that was incredibly dangerous. Had time permitted for the crew to fully brief for the approach to runway 28, there may have been more mitigation in place to avoid this happening. Indeed, it's telling that the first officer also didn't seem to appreciate that descent below MDA, or previously below the glide path, but more importantly, below the MDA, was something that shouldn't happen. It wasn't challenged, according to the cockpit voice recorder, which was recovered subsequently from the crash. So why didn't the first officer speak up? And why didn't the captain notice that things simply weren't right? After all, he had 22 years of flying experience. Well, the chances are, and from what it seems from the subsequent reports, that they were suffering from attention capture. So they were focused on finding this runway because they knew they could find the runway because the previous crew had found the runway. So of course they were going to find the runway. But in focusing their attention on that one thing, they neglected to consider the bigger picture. They neglected to consider the safety of the aircraft. And essentially their situational awareness at this point was incredibly poor. At the very beginning of the flight, before they'd even left Berlin, Captain Lutz had given the first officer a lecture on a topic regarding the aspects of flight, which was not something he needed to be lecturing him on. It was something the first officer knew perfectly well, and as a result, what essentially happened was the captain had produced a cockpit gradient that was incredibly steep. Owing to this, it made First Officer Lora really have a hard time of challenging that authority in a situation where perhaps he wasn't entirely sure himself of what was going on, again, owing to the capacity and situational awareness factors that we've already discussed. So... We've got a cockpit gradient here that's established and an environment that's established where it's very hard for the less experienced individual who isn't doing the flying to speak up and say, actually, do you know what? I'm not happy with this. So we now have a situation on board the flight deck of Crossair Flight 3597 where there are two pilots, neither of them have brilliant capacity, who haven't really briefed what they're both expecting to share that mental model a captain whose history is one of uh, errors, of incidents, of anecdotal reports from other first officers saying that he was quite autocratic and wouldn't take input, and him having established a cockpit gradient, which was incredibly steep, leading a much more gentle individual to not feel like they could speak up. And this is before we've even considered the fact that they descended below MDA, which in itself should never have happened. But further to this, the captain was likely fatigued. He spent time when he wasn't flying for Crossair as a flight instructor and would often not take the breaks that he was legally required to do before other flights, before his commercial flights. So he was likely suffering from a degree of chronic fatigue. The first officer had been working hard in the previous days, flying long days with minimum rest, and again, fatigue was likely to be a factor. Of course, we're aware of the impact that fatigue has upon cognitive capacity, 
upon decision making and actually upon the incentive that people have to correct their mistakes. If somebody's fatigued, they will often potentially recognise a mistake, but do nothing to change that situation. So while we're fairly aware that Captain Lutz was not in a position where his situational awareness was good enough to recognise that he wasn't two miles out from the airport that he thought he was, but more than three, it's not impossible that the first officer did have more situational awareness, but that fatigue stopped him from acting. Combined with a steep cockpit gradient, all of these factors are just piling up to make it really difficult for him to challenge the captain on what was going on. Much like any industry, aviation suffers from people bending rules. It happens all the time. And often those bending of the rules or the standard operating procedures, SOPs, is minor and it doesn't impact upon safety. Captain Lutz had a history of bending an awful lot of rules. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes, as with the Saab 340 landing gear, it really didn't. But if you're in a pattern of breaking and bending those rules, then you're going to continue doing so. And this is likely part of the reason that they continue to descend below MDA. Combined with limited cognitive capacity, not least due to fatigue, and the confirmation bias from the previous crew, who had told them that they'd seen lights at two miles. And for the crew of Crossair Flight 3597, when they were what they perceived to be at two miles, which wasn't two miles, of course, they did see lights. So by default, they put that into their mental model and extracted the fact that the lights were the runway without having any positive confirmation that that was the case. That level of task fixation and expectation bias are fundamentally what led to the crash of Crossair Flight 3597. The fact that they were able to make what they saw in reality fit their mental model because they expected to see a certain thing at a certain point led them to fly the aircraft into the ground. And while go-around was called, it was also called 600 feet or so below the MDA, below which they should never have descended. Now, the fact that they descended below it was ultimately down to a degree of normalisation of deviation, which has been discussed in previous episodes of the podcast. But fundamentally, that expectation bias, which seeps into all elements of life, is a genuine risk. If you're in a situation where you expect a certain outcome, and despite an awful lot of clues suggesting that that outcome isn't going to happen, it can be very easy to press on regardless and expect to achieve that outcome. And as a result, there are so many lessons that can be learned from the crash of Crossair Flight 3597. For starters, trying to lower that authority gradient is so important. Making sure that people don't challenge in an inappropriate way. If we look at what Captain Lutz said at the beginning of the flight, where he was trying to prove a point almost, he put those barriers up in the first place that made it really difficult for the first officer to challenge appropriately because he was having to overcome certain barriers that previously weren't in place and indeed shouldn't have been in place in order to question appropriately. The risks of expectation bias extend far beyond aviation. Looking for a moment at science, if we think about clinical trials, if participants go into those with a certain expectation as to whether a drug or a, an injection or a treatment or whatever is going to work or not, then that's likely to influence their perceptions and thus their ratings 
of the efficacy of whatever it is that they're trialling. So it makes it essentially not a fair test. And when it comes to aviation and expectation bias, it's been a factor in numerous air crashes and other incidents over the years. Often people will hear what they expect to hear, not what's actually said, or see what they expect to see, not what's actually seen. And this can be a real factor when listening to transmissions from air traffic control, for instance, and is often a reason that people will read them back incorrectly. But how do we tackle this? The biggest factor here is communication. Clear, open communication. Asking open questions. What do you perceive the situation as? What threats do you see here? Not, as has been in the case in, again, a number of incidents that have happened, it's this one, isn't it? Or, do you think this is right? Because leading people down a certain route makes them much more likely to say yes, and it doesn't open up those challenges in such an easy way. So as I say, the best way to avoid that expectation bias is to communicate. Unfortunately, when we look at the cross-air flight, those lines of communication have been shut down, which made challenging the expectation bias an awful lot harder. That's all for this week. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please do like, rate, subscribe to the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts from. And next week, we'll be looking at the Zagreb incident.